0: Hey, welcome back to another edition of Ed Choice Chats. I'm your host, our VP of Communications, Jennifer Wagner, and I have an all star team with me today to talk about our 2019 EdChoice Choice ABCs superlatives. So I'm joined today by Mike Shaw, one of our key researchers, Leslie Heiner, our VP of Legal Affairs, and our CEO, Robert Enlow. We're going to go through the best, the worst, the ups, the downs, the highs, the lows, the past, the present, and the future of school choice in America in about, I don't know, 40 or 45 minutes. So let's get started. Our Superlatives is what we do every year to look at all of those programs that have been enacted or and sometimes been repealed. And this year we're going to start with our most empowering program, which goes to Arizona's Empowerment Scholarship Accounts. Robert, talk about that, would you?
1: So, Arizona's empowerment scholarship counts, which have been in, in, in uh, the first ESA passed in America, and they were attempting to, to expand it next year, or this last year, which we will talk more about. But the goal here was to say which program offers more funding, which funding is secured and guaranteed, which allows parents the most flexibility, and which basically gives parents more purchasing power. And so we looked at all these criteria. We had lots of debate in our team about this and came up with Arizona because ultimately the current form of Arizona's ESA program its funding stream is stronger than any other program that we can see its funding stream is secured and guaranteed so it's not subject to the whims of budgetary needs and annual requirements of repayments right or re-rebudgeting and it's a preloaded debit card that gives families a lot more flexibility and purchasing power unlike some of the other programs so the reality is is Arizona's empowerment scholarship programs even before it lost the referendum, was considered to be the best and most empowering program to us. Again, there was debate about other similar style programs in Indiana and whether Florida and Nevada, North Carolina, Tennessee. All of those were on the, on the, the discussion block, but Arizona still held out its number one spot.
0: Lives up to his name, Empowering Empowerment Scholarships. But, right. but you mentioned, Robert, we did have some back and forth on uh, you know, Indiana being you know, obviously a very choice-friendly state. Uh, and came down to, you know, Indiana and Arizona for our next category, which was the most well-rounded. So Mike, talk a little bit about kind of that debate and why Indiana came out on top.
2: Yeah, so our most well-rounded policy category is one that, like the previous category, is, is built on a way to help empower families and is built around good program design. The key difference, though, is the eligibility and security of funding carrying the weight in this program maybe a little bit more so than the flexibility component. And so Indiana's voucher, because of that, did kind of take the cake because at least 46% of Hoosier families in the state are eligible for this voucher program. Arizona's ESA right now, because the referendum did not go into effect, it didn't pass, it's a little over 22%, about a fifth of students in Arizona are eligible for that program. Indiana's, and Robert, I know, You've mentioned this before, it may actually be higher than we say because there are multiple pathways other than just the income eligibility pathway that we use to calculate how many families can use it. You know, like Arizona's ESA, though, it does have a guaranteed level of funding and it can't be put to referendum, unlike the Arizona ESA. So all in all, very close to vote. But we saw the Choice Scholarship Program, Indiana's voucher, as being the most well-rounded policy this year.
1: And it was interesting. We we took a vote on this in our office, right? And so, and I just so we're clear about this was not the deciding vote or the uh, the last vote. There
0: is no deciding uh, vote. There
1: was no there was no deciding <laughs> vote. But but Indiana won literally in our office by one vote. So that can tell you how close it is. And I I think one of the key points of of, of this is if if you're a family in Indiana that qualifies for a scholarship and there's a space available at a private school that'll take you, the money is going with you. There's no discussion about it. There's no worry about it. You're just going to get the money. And while we don't think it's enough money, that that ability of just like if there's a space and there's an opportunity and there's a family, then there's dollars, that makes a huge deal and a big difference for families in Indiana. And, you know, in Arizona's program has been capped a little a little along the way, and it's been growing, but it's been growing slowly. Indiana's program was the fastest growing, and our program can't be put to a referendum. So that's a big deal, being in a state like ours. And so, you know, the only way for us to continue on is get bigger and bigger. And the money then is pegged to the amount of public school funding. So it's always going to increase.
0: It is good to be in Indiana and be the home to that program as we are a national nonprofit, but we are based here. But I, I do, before we get to our next category, Robert, I do want to make a quick note. Why were no tax credit scholarships even considered for well-rounded policy?
1: So that's a, a really great question because you look at places like Florida and Florida's tax credit scholarship program, and the folks there, people like John Curtley and Doug Todd Hill have to Step Up for Students, they've done an amazing job in getting so many kids an opportunity. But ultimately, the problem with tax credit programs comes down to the simple fact is it depends entirely on two things. One, the amount of the cap that the state will allow in terms of total tax credits. And two, the willingness to donors to give, right? And so even though Florida is at, eight, I think, $800 million or something like that right now, Mike, I can't remember. Yeah, a little over. A little over $800 million. You have to raise that every single year, and that's still only like 4% or less of what the state spends on students uh, already, right? So it's, it can't get higher. It can't eat into what's following, dollars following kids because it's always charitable contributions. And so for us, while that's an amazing program and truly amazing, it's charitable choice. It's not truly educational choice. And we don't, we don't want to say that they're, they're terrible, that they're helping a thousand, uh, 100,000 kids almost. It's In fact, it's awesome. But it's just limiting in the fact that the tax credits are always going to have a cap on them.
2: And to provide some data to contextualize what Robert just said, Florida's tax credit scholarship program, which is the largest school choice program in the country, they ended up having funding issues last year, 2018, that didn't allow them to sustain their 100,000 scholarship count in the state. They fell a little bit based off the last reports to 99,000 and a half or so, and yeah, it's just it's it's just an issue that's inherent with these programs and the way they're designed. So yeah, Jen, to answer your question, that's why they weren't considered for our policy category. And it's also why we ended up kind of demoting, in a way, the credits and deductions from our ABCs this year.
0: Thank you for mentioning that. And uh, I know I promise, Leslie, we'll get to you in a second. We got all kinds of legal stuff coming up. But Mike, I want to Stay with you for our next category, which is uh, most popular. I feel like we should maybe have a theme song in here or something. It should be walking down the runway. But this year, uh, most popular was Wisconsin's Special Needs Scholarship Program. So talk about that if you could.
2: Yeah, so this is a pretty simple category. It's purely numbers-based. Which program grew by the most as a percent of its enrollment or its participation from year over year? Our years of this year were 2017-18 school year to 18-19. And the Wisconsin uh, special needs voucher grew by a whopping 181%. That works out to an increase of 446 students. So it is the newest or one of the newest of Wisconsin's many voucher programs. The oldest, of course, Milwaukee, going back to the early 90s. But it seems to be taking root in helping out families that don't have the same options in traditional public schools for their students with special needs. So that was good to see. I think Pennsylvania's EITC tax credit program deserves honorable mention, though, because it grew by a lot as far as sheer numbers. Almost 4,000 students of a year-over-year increase from 15-16 to 16-17. It now has 34,000 students participating, and that was really good to see too because there were some budget impasse issues with funding that program and its companion tax credit scholarship program. But luckily, politics subsided, and it's kind of returned to a growth model in Pennsylvania.
1: And I want to take a quick note here about special needs programs in general. Uh, Wisconsin is is obviously our most popular because it grew. But this is something we're seeing across the country. Many, many programs in America, school choice programs, are specifically designed to make sure kids that have exceptional needs are getting access to the kind of services they want. In a way, it's fulfilling the terms of what IDEA is supposed to be about, making sure you get a free and appropriate education regardless of where it is, whether it's in a traditional public charter or private. And so if you look at Wisconsin's program, even Indiana's voucher program has a pathway for special needs. All the growth, a lot of the growth is, is, is in this sort of category for special needs families or, or, or private schools being able to handle that and, and, and handle kids that have exceptional needs. And I think it's really important to put any myth to rest that somehow private schools aren't willing to take kids with special and exceptional needs, that's just not true.
3: We're also seeing some of the most interesting innovation in education in these voucher programs for children with special needs. For example, in the state of Oklahoma, in Tulsa, they have a school there for kids with special needs that's just, it's exceptional. It's one of the best in the country, Uh, but that's in Tulsa. So if you live two hours away in Oklahoma City, um uh, you don't necessarily have access to that school. As a result, after the voucher was passed, then the parents of children with special needs who lived in Oklahoma City, they reached out to their local healthcare providers at, at hospitals, they reached out to local university, and they together collaboratively came up with a program design for a new school that they opened And the model that they have created for this school in Oklahoma City is one that can be mirrored across the country. It's just, it's an exceptional program. But again, it's because of the sustainability of the funding that Robert mentioned earlier that's really important that it enables this kind of creativity and real innovation in education to happen.
0: Fantastic. Thanks for that, Leslie. Robert, we're going to go back to you one more time here uh, on our most improved category, which is Ohio's Educational Choice Scholarship Program. And this is, again, a numbers category, uh, but this is a pretty important and pretty big growth area for this past year.
1: So there's nothing sometimes an oldie's goodie, right? And so Ohio is definitely an oldie, and uh, it's been a program. You know, Ohio was the, Cleveland in particular, was the second modern voucher program to be enacted in 1995 and 96. And then they passed a program in the early 2000s, and and the Ohio Educational Choice Program became our, our winner this year because it has seen the biggest student eligibility expansion this year, right? So we saw it with a 21% increase from 8% eligibility to 29% in eligibility from last year to this year. And the reason for this is the result most likely of changes that the Ohio Department of Education made to how it determines which schools in the state are low-performing. You know, one of the challenges with low-performing voucher programs is that the departments of education just gain the system or can gain the system? And local public schools can gain the system by changing which is a, a, an eligible school and which is not. And as a former board member of School Choice of Ohio, we actually had to sue various public schools, particularly ones in Cincinnati, just to get the names and lists of folks who were eligible to receive a scholarship. But the Ohio Department of Education has, has strengthened that and therefore more kids are eligible. And you've seen Dayton, for example, seen a doubling of its students that are eligible. So we're really excited to see Ohio jumping back into the fray. And we think that there's going to be more choice uh, in Ohio and, and it's going to grow even further. Obviously, we saw some growth in Iowa with its tax credit program, growth in Wisconsin with its statewide program and Mississippi special needs program and Louisiana's program. But, but Ohio, an oldie but a goodie, takes the cake.
2: And just to add a little more context, Robert, to what you just said, for Ohio in particular, the reason we found out from our friends at School Choice Ohio of this increase is primarily that the safe harbor provision within the state was removed or or slowly stripped away for this coming school year. And so because of that, these schools that by every category would have met the failing or low performing schools criteria in years past, But because of the Safe Harbor provision, the students assigned to those schools weren't able to use the EdChoice program. They now are able to. So that was huge for this program and uh, students in Ohio. An interesting parallel to that is the income portion of the EdChoice program, which we count as a separate voucher, but that's purely income-based as opposed to low performing schools. That's a program that's usually high on our list because it adds a grade level every year. It's still relatively young. But it's interesting to see that it didn't make our top five because you saw Income eligibility expansions uh, in places like Ohio, for instance, went from 300 to 400% FRL. Wisconsin, they add a percent of the local school district eligibility population each year, so that helps their eligibility as well. So overall, it, many commented that this wasn't a particularly busy year legislatively for school choice, but the eligibility expansions seemed to indicate otherwise. Mm-hmm.
0: And well, I think it's worth probably jumping in here for those who are new to EdChoice or maybe haven't listened to us or know our mission. The reasons that Robert and Mike just laid out are why we are for universal and unencumbered school choice, which sets us apart from some of the other folks in the school choice movement who maybe only focus on low income or special needs. We wanna make sure that all families have access to the school that works best for their student. And when you have, as Robert said, you know, state boards of education or state departments of education or local schools that are able to quote-unquote game the system, then that is putting the ability for families to access educational choice out of their hands and into the hands quite oftentimes of bureaucrats or folks who are not on the ground helping those families day to day. So again, that's kind of a reminder of what our mission is and why we're here. And I guess also that's my positive. And then we lead into a slightly more negative category, which uh, is our biggest setback. And Leslie, I know how much you love the Montana Supreme Court for their decision uh, late last year uh, on on their tax credit scholarship program. So tell us, tell us why you're such a huge fan of the Montana Supreme Court.
3: <laughs> well, what a great setup. <laughs> um, yes, I am not fond of this decision from the Montana Supreme Court. And let me tell you why. Since the 1990s, there has been uh, some considerable litigation over school choice programs, both vouchers and tax credit scholarship programs. However, it's been easy for us to say, recently especially, that these tax credit scholarship programs have been immune to negative decisions from courts. Uh, So all the courts have ruled in a couple different ways. First, primarily, that there is not much standing to sue on a tax credit scholarship case because the money involved is not money from the state, but rather it's money that comes from private donations that goes to private nonprofits that distributes the money directly to families, and then families make their decisions on how to use that money for the educational needs of their children. However, Montana is a true outlier. Tana is the first state in the nation to rule against tax credit scholarship programs. Now, the court ruled in two significant ways. First of all, the question on the table was related to religious liberty and whether a tax credit scholarship program that allowed children to attend religious schools, whether that conformed to their constitution, And there are constitutional limitations on the interplay between the state and religious entities. The court said uh, no, that it goes too far, that religious schools cannot participate in any publicly funded program. Okay, now notice my choice of words, publicly funded. They also then went on to rule that a tax credit scholarship program actually is a in in indirect public funding um, of scholarships. Now, as we see it, the court was wrong on both points. So the result of this is two things. First, a motion has been filed to stay the ruling of the court, put it on hold, pending a request up to the U.S. Supreme Court to please take this case. The reason why it's necessary for the U.S. Supreme Court to take this case is because if you agree with the Montana Supreme Court's analysis of their own constitution as it relates to religious liberty, then the consequence is that it is in conflict with the US Supreme Court's provisions on religious liberty. And that cannot stand. Furthermore, there was a decision by the US Supreme Court, Trinity Lutheran versus Comer, If you've listened to some of our earlier podcasts, you've heard a lot about that landmark case where the U.S. Supreme Court said just simply that any widely available public benefit program, in such program, you can't say that a church or religious entity or religious school can't participate just because they're religious. That's discriminatory under the U.S. Constitution. And apparently under um, every state constitution that we've seen, except in Montana, but we hope that that will change. It's very significant for the families in Montana who have embraced this program. This needs to be taken up by the U.S. Supreme Court so they can have any hope of ever having school choice in Montana. So it's pretty serious for the families there in Montana as well. Now... Uh, That wasn't the only issue. We had this last year in Arizona. There was a public vote about the expansion of the education savings accounts. Sadly, that became a wildly political vote. It seemed to have very little to do with education or how kids were doing or what parents wanted. But the expansion of that program uh, was voted down. The program itself survives, however, and certainly future opportunities exist in Arizona. So even though it was a defeat, it wasn't a fatal defeat for school choice in Arizona. And then finally, there is still currently pending a proposed rule by the Department of Treasury regarding IRS rules on the federal deductibility of contributions for which a donor receives a state tax credit, which is... Now, tax credit scholarship programs are structured in virtually all the states that have these programs the proposed rule at this point is confusing it's pretty tough for donors when they're not sure is there tax benefit if I give a contribution to a nonprofit is there not so we're waiting for clarification on this rule and the downside of this is that it's having a negative impact on the scholarship granting organizations in states that have these tax credit scholarship programs because donors are just waiting to hear something decisive out of the Department of Treasury and have been waiting since August of last year. We'll see how it turns out, but stay tuned to this channel to find out the latest on that IRS ruling.
0: Well, I think that IRS ruling obviously involved you. I know, Mike, you got involved in that. Robert, you got involved in that. And I think that's, again, probably worth saying earlier we did not include tax credit scholarships in, in some of our other categories for consideration. And this issue as presented and as it moves forward, as you say, Leslie, gives donors pause and could potentially threaten these programs and the families that use them and may in fact present an opportunity for us and for other school choice advocates to say, you know, this is obviously an effective way in certain states that that have Blaine amendments or prohibitions on, on vouchers or ESAs. But This is probably not the school choice program that we would be the most supportive of moving forward because it is, you know, limited by, A, contributions, but also by folks in Washington who, honestly, I'm not sure really even realized what they were doing when they passed these rules in the first place.
1: I would agree with that totally. You're asking me to say something positive about Washington? No way. I think think Milton Friedman and all of us would say, look, the, the fact is this is a state's issue. And one of our key pillars at EdChoice is that anything coming out of D.C. cannot harm existing state programs and has to be voluntary. And this is an example of that. And, again, while we love tax credit programs and the way they help kids, it's just not our preferred policy model right now because of those limitations, because so many things can go wrong that can dramatically change the outcome of those programs, which then leads me to a quick comment about Arizona and the expansion on the legal side. You know there was a raging debate in our office about whether Arizona's expansion defeat in the referendum was a bad or good thing or good or bad thing right so was it good that it went down in referendum because it was a universal program but but then if you look at the actual text of of the referendum and what was what the bill was passed originally it actually would have been slower growth than the existing program now potentially so you know you've got pros and cons right so Look, that's what Arizona did. It looks like Arizona is going to come back and try and expand their program regardless, which is really interesting. And so, you know, I think I think what it tells us is that the more you can get direct to parents, right? Direct to the parents to get the money in their hands and let them do what they need to do, the more you're going to continue to grow programs.
0: Well, and as you wrote Robert in your your op-ed in the Arizona Republic about that referendum outcome is that it does present us with an opportunity to go back in and, as you say, talk directly to parents and families, which is something that I think we do exceptionally well, and and hear them and train them and make sure they understand that the future of of their students' educational opportunity does depend on on legislation and litigation, but it also depends on boots on the ground and making sure that their voices are heard over what can, to other folks' points here, be very political and very overwhelming. So yeah, those are our setbacks this year, but let's turn to most inspiring. Let's let's be a little more upbeat. And I think this was an interesting, it is a tax credit scholarship program, but it's an interesting program that came out of Florida and dealt specifically with bullied students. And so Robert, talk a little bit about you know how that program works and why it is our most inspiring nominee this year.
1: So this is one of those cases where all of a sudden you see a new program in Florida and it was based on kids who identified as bullied, right? So first of its kind program, basically that any family who's reported an incident of bullying to their school principal, they can get a scholarship to attend another private school or a public school of their choice, right? So it's this incredible, they're calling it rightfully so, HOPE scholarships. And now other legislatures are taking this up across the country in Arizona and and I think you, Colorado and other places. We're seeing this incredible growth. Now, here, let's humanize this for a second, right? So look, my son was bullied, right, for once. and And it's Challenging. He was in a non public school. So, you know, I was able to deal with that because I was able to go to the school and sort that out. A lot of families don't have that ability. And this is particularly true if you like look at surveys and studies about children who identify themselves as homosexual or, or lesbian or gay, right? And so, a lot of our traditional schools, these kids are getting bullied, right? And it's just not acceptable that bullying is allowed. And this Hope Scholarship allows families to do what's right for their kids and take them to an environment that they want for their kid.
0: And I think, Robert, building on that, and not to give away too much of our upcoming research or, or things that we've researched outside of the ABCs in the past, but what we find, and, and Mike, you can talk a little bit about this, when we talk to parents about what they're looking for in a school environment, shockingly, is not an A to F grade or you know a star rating of the school, but one of the top things that they report is they want to make sure that the school their child is in is safe and secure. and. Robert, to your point, a lot of times, you know, in a public school, you mentioned LGBTQ kids, they report a higher instance of bullying in public schools. And so for many kids, a private school scholarship or, or a lifeline out of the school where they are not being treated the way that they should be, it is truly that. It's truly a lifeline. And so, Mike, I know some of your research is focused on that. Not to take us too far off course, but I think that's really interesting.
2: Yeah, it definitely is. And then, Robert, to echo your sentiments about the uniqueness of this program and it how it may be cloned in, in other states. The HOPE Scholarship Program, as inspiring and as it is, and it's the reason it won this category for us, there are some limitations that should be noted too that may limit, Jen, the ability of parents to get the safety or the environment their children need at the most opportune time. And it didn't have a huge take-up, at least on the private school side its first semester, which was just this past fall. There have been some reports or some murmurings that The schools, which are by law supposed to inform parents when there is a reported incident that their children have these options, that they may not be doing so or they may not be doing so clearly. So that's something to watch. And, you know, implementation with new programs is always something that's tricky, but we definitely want to see that grow in Florida with this program. The other thing about this program is this funding mechanism. We talked about tax credit scholarships and how everything from IRS regulations to donor apathy can Loosen them. And this has one of the most unique, if not the most unique, funding mechanisms in that it is funded by sales tax for new car purchases. And if I'm recalling the Florida law correctly, it's not motorcycles, it's not used cars, just new automobiles, four wheels. So, yeah, maybe these other states that are proposing similar programs can think about funding and roll out as they do so. And we'll have a, a new and better, possibly most inspiring program next year. I should say, though, it's worth mentioning also. Pennsylvania in this category as well. We we mentioned them previously with their EITC tax credit program and their their large increase because of a funding release. Well, this past summer, they actually passed an additional funding increase funding the program, which also helps out with after-school activities, to $110 million. I mean, that was cool to see, frankly, in a, today's kind of contentious political climate. It's Pennsylvania is a more of a purple state it had a Democratic governor. And uh, they still did this, and it's going to help out a lot more kids for one of the largest mm-hmm. states with school choice and one of the most popular school choice programs.
1: Let me just add to what you're saying, Mike. I really appreciate hearing that. Look, on the downside of the most inspiring program, the bullying program, you know, you don't really want a child who's been bullied to be beholden to the number of new cars you sell, right? And so that's the downside. On the upside, what I think is unique about this Florida program is it's starting to reorient the whole conversation about what a family wants right it's not about what a system wants it's basically letting the family determine the course of their child's education if it's based on bullying or special needs you're beginning to see this sort of re- almost return to consumer power and I mean I hate to use the word consumer but really return to parent power right so it's not just having to move houses right like you do in suburbia or you move out of the urban core or whatever so it's not just being able to get into a magnet school and utilizing your social capital—it's actually able to do what's right for your kid where you live, and I think that's a real reorientation around the power dynamic. I, I think it's is a really important thing to mention. Again, don't want it based on the number of cars we sell, but it's heading the right direction.
0: And you know, it's interesting though. I mean, we can sit here and and the sale of new cars and a checkoff form on on that on that piece of paper is an odd way to fund a school choice program. But one of the cool things that Oftentimes we forget, we've been doing this for more than 20 years, and Robert, you've, you've been here the whole time, and you were there when we started, you know, putting together programs, and I think you've, you've said before it was you and a few other people uh, sitting around a dining room table, coming up with the best ideas and the best way to fund them. And, and it's easy to forget that, yes, while that may not be the most ideal funding mechanism, it is a way to get those parents of students who have been bullied in the state of Florida access to a different school which brings us to, you know, the new program category, because it is inspiring to work here and to see new programs coming out of nothing, coming out of oftentimes, you know, a true parent revolution where you've just got some people who are not getting what they need and they go to the state house and, and it works for them. And so, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm just a little idealistic, but it's, it's kind of fun to get to these next few categories, including best new program in Puerto Rico, which has not had the best of luck with its K-12 system. And now, because of some obviously unfortunate natural disaster, but also some political changes and some litigation that Leslie and Mike can talk about, you know, has a new school choice program that has been deemed constitutional. So I'll throw it to the two of you to fight over which one wants to talk about best new program and also our biggest legal challenge, but also, I think, success.
2: Sure. So maybe just to to tee up the, the legal challenge first that, that Jan alluded to, Puerto Rico passed last year, but they're in the process of launching a pretty expansive voucher program. I, I say pretty expansive. It can be quite expansive, but because it is is still so new and hasn't officially launched, the Puerto Rican Department of Education is still working out a fair amount of the regulations and funding mechanisms and prioritizations. But all in all, the real door to the program is you have to be in public school two years prior to using it. And that's basically the main eligibility pathway, so it has the potential to serve a lot of Puerto Rican children, as does a lot of the uh, education reform law that that went into effect last year with the island getting charter schools for the first time, with them kind of breaking up their monochrome system. Uh, it's a kind of like Hawaii, a single district system, and they kind of quasi broke it up into seven, I believe, different districts and systems to give schools and parents and educators more local control. So yeah, this was inspiring to see, and just because of the sheer eligibility pathway, it definitely was the, the best new program we saw this year. It's also the first program I can think of that has a specific prioritization for gifted students and ways to get them into universities and to take dual enrollment. So it's, it's really cool to see that the Puerto Rican Department of Education is kind of thinking in a future-forward model of education and student-oriented education. But it didn't get there automatically, uh, as I'm sure Leslie Wolf was in, because there were those who wanted to stop it from happening.
3: There's always someone who wants to be the fly in the ointment, and that, in fact, uh, happened in Puerto Rico as well. I I think it's it's notable, uh, and people should know this about Puerto Rico, that there's been a lot of talk that, well, the voucher program, school choice, that sort of thing, it's enacted because there were hurricanes, there were trouble, they needed some help. Uh, but actually, in Puerto Rico, they've had population losses on a real consistent basis and, and large population losses for, for 10 years or more um, that have been very, very significant. As a result, they've been closing public schools every year in big numbers simply because there were no kids there to, to educate. The families left when litigation came along, first thing I did was to do a little research. That's when I found out about the population statistics and that this was not just related to the hurricane situation. But I also learned something else that was just devastating. There is a test called NAEP, and the NAEP tests are are given across the country in states as a test per se you don't just look at one year and say oh that's the result but it's better for looking at trends over time um, of educational quality in states Uh, so I decided to look up fourth grade math for Puerto Rico that's one of the standards that we look at in any state and I, I, I couldn't understand what I read because it said nil. I said well wait, did they not take the test that year? Well, no, they took the test. They'd been taking it for some time, but they could not actually register any percentage of children who scored at any kind of level of educational attainment in fourth grade math. And the uh, results were similar in other grades, other subject matters. So it it was real clear that they've been in a crisis situation in education for quite some time. And again, before the hurricanes came along, this is something that's been building over time. So they enacted the voucher program and charter schools program, and, uh, and they were really in a hurry to do that. And they kept saying, this, we have to do this now. We're going to stop this detrimental situation. We're going to fix it now. And they did. So, of course, the uh, the American Federation of Teachers, the AFT, both the U.S. National Organization and the local Puerto Rico um, organization, they sued to stop the program, and for the same kind of garden variety reasons that we might typically see in the states, oh, it takes money away from public schools, it'll be harmful, blah, 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 all the reasons that are wrong, but we nonetheless keep hearing those reasons in litigation we did in Puerto Rico. I have to give the Puerto Rico Supreme Court a lot of credit because they also mirrored the same language of the legislature and the governor of Puerto Rico and said, that's it, we can't wait. We're acting on this right now. We have a lot of kids and a lot of families who are in a lot of distress and also a big commitment in Puerto Rico To really turn things around there people are doing some pretty hard work around the clock to turn things around in Puerto Rico and the Supreme Court said we're not going to let this litigation stop that kind of progress we're considering this case right away well they did Um, when it got to the Supreme Court which was just in a couple months time uh, we had five days to file briefs in the case and the Supreme Court said that they were going to act before the school year began because it was so critical that the, uh, that the new secretary of education knew what she had to work with so that they could go forward and not miss a beat for their kids. So we found that in the ruling, the ruling was very diverse. Judges ruled that the program was constitutional for a variety of different ways, which is a little bit unusual for, for those of you who are court watchers and actually read these decisions. The The Puerto Rico case is pretty interesting because you'll find a whole variety of reasons why vouchers are constitutional in Puerto Rico. Some of that mirrors some of our own language in the, in the upper 48 states. But they were very clear that this had to happen, this would be good for families and children in Puerto Rico. And they stayed true to their focus, true to the mission of their constitution and they got it done in a hurry, so good for them.
1: And they reversed a previous decision, right? I mean, essentially, they, they got rid of precedent, so...
3: Yes, Robert, thank you for adding that. There was a case in 1994 ruling that vouchers were unconstitutional, but the, the same court stepped up and said, no, we, we've reconsidered that. We see it more clearly now, and they did. Their legal reasoning was very solid. And now they have vouchers in Puerto Rico, so... God bless them. Godspeed. I hope everything continues to develop favorably for them.
0: And we'll definitely keep our eye on Puerto Rico in, in years to come, and, and perhaps we'll see them in, a, in another category in the superlatives' future. So our last our last big category here is most likely to succeed in 2019. And, and I should note at this point, obviously, everyone knows last year was an election year. We don't make our decisions on which states to go into and, and work in based on elections. However, elections have consequences, as the old saying goes, and sometimes those consequences are that governors, governors governors-elect, are strong school choice supporters, and that obviously is something that we are very happy about here. Uh, I should note, if you want to see how last year's election broke down on the governors, uh, you can visit our website edchoice.org. We actually broke all of them down based on their their stances, public stances on school choice, uh, whether they are for, against, or uncertain. But our most likely to succeed in 2019, I think, probably does hinge a bit on the election of a new governor in the state of Tennessee, who is a strong school choice supporter by his own words. And Robert, talk a little bit about what the landscape there looks like.
1: So the drum roll is, you know, <laughs> uh, for, for most likely to succeed is, is Tennessee. And really, you know, look, this is a, an art, not a science. Elections matter. But based on what, what Governor, Ele- or now Governor Bill Lee said... And, and what we're hearing from the leadership in the House and Senate, there's a real strong possibility to have a much further progression of school choice in the state of Tennessee. Does that mean it's a done deal? Of course not. But the reality is, is based on those public comments and based on what's been going on in the state for over a number of years and the amount of effort that's gone in to continue to educate the public, it looks like Tennessee is going to be one of the hotbeds for school choice. And, and certainly he really is a strong school choice supporter. But look, there are lots of lots of places. You, you, you talked about Pennsylvania where, you know, while we don't see it a huge expansion, you saw a Democrat governor sign an expansion to the, to the bill. But if you're looking at what from the elections, what do we know from the elections? If elections were the only thing we cared about, you saw Alaska all of a sudden, and let's go in alphabetical order here, Alaska, you know, with the election of a governor who's a strong school choice supporter. You've seen Florida not only with the governor who's now supportive, and, and in fact, it made a difference in the race, we understand, but also the secretary of education, who's incredibly supportive of the of the idea of more school choice. And Florida has a ton of school choice now, and now they've gotten some great court decisions. And so maybe you could see that momentum building to having a real big, huge statewide ESA program and get rid of the of the idea of always having to rely on tax credit contributions. You look at Georgia, the governor-elect there, or the governor there was is strongly supportive. And, and, and in fact, we know a lot of people who are saying that in a couple year to a couple years, this is another state that could grow. Iowa still has a chance based on its uh, recent election. Missouri is open. Little West Virginia still has a chance, right? So let's not count out. One One of my favorite things that we've done over the years, you know, there are a lot of states that have had a lot of school choice. So Wisconsin has had a lot of effort and Ohio has had a lot of effort. Florida has had a lot of effort and Arizona, Indiana and Pennsylvania. Now, these are the states that form the core of the School of Choice movement in some ways, but you see these new states come on board, like Nevada a few years ago, even though we've got to get the darn thing funded, or or New Hampshire, you know, struggling a little New Hampshire to get a program on. But I think West Virginia is a really unique place. I mean, if you could get something like that in West Virginia, you could show that it could really work in a rural state. So, so there's a lot of opportunity. Again, our Ed Choice team was not always saying this is going to be the number one state, but, uh, you know, based on what you see publicly, you think Tennessee's got a lot of opportunities. But Again, don't count out places like, you know, Arizona to keep going at it, or don't count out places like Colorado to try something new. There's all sorts of opportunities out there. And, and that's because I think what you're seeing over and over, and based on our polling, based on all the data you see, more and more families want more and more choice. If 40%, as you just said in your medium post, Jen, of Americans are already selecting a school of choice, that was 10-year-old data, you know it's more right? You know people want more opportunity, and particularly those who have a little bit of means. And so so you're going to see a lot of states, I think, come to the forefront uh, this year. Again, now that it's not an election year. And I think that always happens. If you look at the trend, it always is you know, spikes up and down a little bit during elections, uh, election years and non-election years. So we'll see. Um, but again, where I think we've got to be careful. The kind of school choice we're talking about are real systemic changes, right? We're not just talking about any more nibbling at the the edges of a small tax credit scholarship program or an ESA just for a small number. We're talking big systemic changes, and sometimes those things take a few years to get past.
0: Or a few decades, a it, few has decades. It as out. it may
1: seem, turn out.
0: Leslie, Mike, any last thoughts on likely to succeed or anything else on the superlatives this year?
3: Uh, yes, I'd like to add, um, as we're talking about other states to watch for new programs, Robert, you and I have been part of this movement for more years than we should probably say, but uh, we may remember the early years when we were still looking at a whole country that was first considering a school choice. But today, we have 29 states, plus D.C., plus Puerto Rico, that has school choice programs. And so whereas in the earlier days, we'd get really excited. We'd want two, three, four different states to sign on with new school choice programs okay well we're now we're running out of states which is kind of a nice thing to say but I think it's important for people to understand that what we've seen happen consistently is that states that have adopted school choice programs expand those programs year after year after year and they expand those programs because they work they work for families parents want them children are succeeding so for any state that currently has a school choice program I would say that's also a state to watch.
1: So I I couldn't agree with you more on that level of like choice begets choice, right? And that's really important. And, you know, in the early days of of, of Ed Choice, Nay Friedman Foundation for Educational Choice, one of our goals was to be the Johnny Appleseed to go out and get any state we could sort of educate them and get them on board. But we also then have to start talking about the reality of what good policy is, right? And so so... We don't want just any choice anymore, right? We're mature as a movement. I, I, use, I always frame it this way. We're now into our 20s after our first job. We're in our second job. We've made the promotion level. You know, it's time to get serious with, with our career and our life, right? And one of those things means we have to be honest about where this movement is and where we want to go. Like states like Indiana that are getting the policy right. States like Florida in some ways are getting the policy right or starting to. States like uh, uh, Arizona. We're, we're really talking about full school choice. I mean, if you count the number of kids, I, Mike, you, you know this off the top of your head. I used to know everything. but We're like now over a half a million kids roughly in school choice programs. Roughly 1% of the school age population are now using public funds to go to private schools. We're making these changes in growth. But that's concentrated in Wisconsin, Ohio, Indiana, Florida, and Arizona and Pennsylvania, basically. Right. And that's great. And we have a lot of states with a lot of programs. The goal here now is to get policies to get everyone in.
2: Yeah, I would just add to that as kind of a a closing thought on my end. Something that that struck me about our list of superlatives is the programs, the way they're designed, or the way the the bills and the education reform went into to play for these programs. They took an and and not an or approach when it comes to education. And I mean that in, you know, we saw and we've seen for the past couple of years that private school choice in particular has been a politically contentious issue. People just don't like the idea, certain sectors of people at least, that children are going to private schools in in some way of of public funding. That's been heard at least loudly, if not always necessarily reflected in in polling data. But I find it nice to, to see, and I think our founder, Milton Friedman, may have as well, that... A fair amount of these programs that are on our Superlives list do take that AND approach. You have Mm -hmm. the HOPE Scholarship Program, for instance, Um, even though it doesn't have a large private school participation uptake right now, there are students who are using the scholarship to transfer to a different public school that may work for them. The same can be said for Puerto Rico's voucher program. While there are no current participants, it it is a a public-private voucher program as well. And then there are the ESAs we highlighted, as well as including Arizona's ESA that you still see a large percentage of users using the program primarily for private school tuition, but they're also using it in other ways for tutoring services, for extracurriculars, and they're taking this holistic view of education. I don't think this was something we intended to do when we set out this year's superlatives, but it it is the results of current education reform.
1: And I think that's a huge point to make. So what's happening in these programs is that we're shifting from this idea of let's fight the system, which is important, we got to fight the system, to what families need to have opportunities so that their children can be successful, they can be self-actualized, they can go to the level they need to get to, and we can actually create a society where everyone benefits, right? It's this sense where we're shifting from the you know public versus private to hey, families need opportunities to make sure their children can get the best possible chance in life to succeed and fulfill their needs because when you do that, we're going to have a better society as a whole. That leads us to our mission statement, which I will end on with Ed Choice, which is advancing universal school choice for all so that children can have successful lives and we can have a stronger society. And that's ultimately what we think school choice is going to lead to. The more we do that, the better it's going to be.
0: Well, I don't think there's anything else we could possibly say. And uh, and on that note, I'm your host, Jennifer Wagner, our VP of Communications, and I want to thank Mike, Leslie, and Robert for being here today, talking you through this. We'll be right back here next year at this time to see what's changed and, and what new programs have come on board. In the interim, please visit our website, www.edchoice.org. You can check out our other podcasts there, our blog, and of course, our real-time updates throughout the year on programs, new programs, changes in enrollment and eligibility, So please, please, please check out edchoice.org, and thanks, as always, for listening.